Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. This is so fun for me. Uh, I've been back to Brookside two or three times, just as we've come to visit family and friends. And uh, I've been kind of where you're sitting uh, two or three times. But now for me to have this view and to look out and to see, let's see, I'm looking across uh, kind of the audience here. And I probably know uh, maybe 20%, 25%, maybe a third of you. And that's fun to see familiar faces, but it's also really fun uh, to look out and say, wow, I don't know many of you. Uh, There's new people that have come into this community, uh, probably from the area. So that is just really a treat to be with you. Just quickly, the fellows program. So I was a fellow with Bill. And, um, you know, I've I've served now in churches in North Dakota, in Chicago, in uh, now in Madison, here in Kansas City. And the fellowship program in the entire nation really in our, in our uh, denomination is unique what is happening here in terms of bringing on pastors, training them, mentoring them, and sending them back out. And I will always be grateful for my experience here uh, at Christ Community because it shaped me in such a profound way. And uh, it allowed me to flourish in my position in Madison. And that can only happen, you know, the imprint of Christ Community can only happen because of your incredible generosity Uh, to this local community. So I just want to say thank you so much uh, for that. So, uh, several months ago, back this past winter, my wife and I were considering getting a dog. Any dog lovers in the crowd today? Any of you? Okay, many of you. Uh, Yeah, well, we chickened out. (laughs) We kind of looked into it, and we decided that, you know, we're both busy people. We're both uh, we both have jobs, and we thought the puppy stage would be too much to handle, so we decided not to get a dog. Plus, we have friends and family coming into town, and oftentimes they will bring their dog with them. So instead of like every day, we get a weekend where that's kind of our little fix to have, you know, a dog and, and things like that. So uh, back in February, my sister, Karen, and her husband, Todd, they brought their dog, Winnie, to Madison. And here's a picture of Winnie on the screen. Winnie is a great dog. She's a yellow lab. Uh, She loves to be around people. She's always smiling, except for that picture on the left. I'm not sure what happened. That must be her serious pose, you know. Everyone's got to do that one. Uh, She is a great dog. She, especially in her younger years, she would play fetch until you thought your arm was going to fall off or, you know, maybe she was going to die of of, uh, exhaustion from fetch. Whenever you're in a room... Winnie has to, if you're at the dining table, you know, she has to, like, be under the dining table among people, and she'll follow you all around and all these things. So, so Winnie, we just had a great time uh, being with Winnie. I don't know if you knew this or not, but, uh, well, you certainly didn't know about Winnie, but did you know that dogs can have phobias? Dogs can have phobias. Winnie has the oddest oddest phobias as a dog. Winnie uh, does this thing where whenever she comes up to stairs, if she were to come right here to these stairs, chances are she would just freeze. She is deathly afraid of stairs. And, uh, you know, a dog like that runs into, like, the dangerous bushes to retrieve a ball but won't go up some stairs. I don't, I don't quite get it. But, um, so this happened literally uh, at our house. Karen and Todd uh, came up the stairs to, to go to bed at night, and, you know, Winnie wants to be where the people are, so she came to the edge of the stairs. She put one paw on the first stair, and she just froze. And she's just looking up at her mom and dad like, I want to come up there, but I can't. I'm sorry. And no matter how much they would coax her, come on, Winnie, get up here. You can do it. Get up here. 
She just froze. She wouldn't move. In fact, Todd actually came down with a little doggy treat. And that is really cruel, isn't it? But um, he put the doggy treat a few stairs up. And you know dogs, you know, doggy treats. They, they say food and their brain completely shuts off. They just go wherever the food is, right? Winnie took one look at that and kind of sniffed and realized that what, she wasn't going to be able to, to reach it. She just froze and cowered back down. I went over to Winnie to pet her and kind of her whole body was trembling there on the bottom, bottom step. I wish I could have gotten, you know, her like a good dog psychologist in that moment. Do you guys know anyone? Maybe I can, I'm not sure. But uh, very interesting what happened in that moment, cowering on the first step. Eventually, Winnie just backed away from the stairs and walked away. It's very interesting. What's a fear did to this dog? <laughs> it caused her to freeze and then walk away. That picture of what fear can do to a dog, right? Just a dog. But I think that picture is, can sometimes happen to us as human beings. Fear, for whatever reason, comes into play, especially in the context of a relationship. Fear, and you just freeze, you tense up, and you just have to back away from the situation, right? You think of a little kid who goes off to school, maybe preschool or kindergarten. And... Uh, they're in school, he, he's at school, and he gets in a fight in the playground. And he's goofing around. He's the one that instigated it. He's the one that's fighting. And he comes back in, gets in trouble, has to go to the principal's office. Then he comes back home to the dinner table. And mom and dad have a conversation with him. And they say, honey, how's your day today? What, what happened? And he kind of swallows hard and he says, well, actually, I got in trouble. I got in a fight at school. I, I went to the principal's office. In that moment, the parent starts berating this child and say, "How could I can't believe you would do that. Get to your room right now and don't ever do that again. This anger. The kid goes to the room crying. Not a couple weeks when he gets in trouble at school again. <laughs> and he comes back home and mom and dad say, Honey, like, how's it going? How did school? Do you think that kid is going to open up like, about how he got in trouble at school that day? Absolutely not. He's going to freeze and just back away from the situation. We do that in subtle ways in our relationship as we grow older with people we know. There are conversations that we just don't want to go there because of fear. Never, I think, is that more true than in the way that we relate to God. You know, we just sang the song up on the screen, Oh, praise him, hallelujah, you know, he is holy. But the idea that God is holy, completely perfect and we are broken, sinful people. <laughs> How can we approach a God like that? Who's, most of the pictures of people in, in Scripture that came face to face with God, they were, just, they were terrified. They fell on their face because they were so frightened. How can we come to a God like that without backing away from fear and going the other way? That's what was happening to the people uh, in the text that we read today in the book of Hebrews. They were Hebrews. They had come out of Judaism they had begun to follow Jesus. But fear came into play when they realized they were sinful. And, and the faith they had left, Judaism, it was a system of sacrifice and priests and temples. They could see it, they could taste it, they could touch it. But now all that was gone. And they wondered, can I have confidence as a broken person coming into the presence of a holy God? So what we're going to see in this text today as we dive into it, the author puts Jesus on display 
And the author says, if you understand who Jesus is for you, he's your high priest. If you understand that, that will change everything. You won't have to shrink back in fear. You can come to him with confidence. Essentially, he's saying, Jesus didn't just die for you. Jesus lives for you now. If you get that, I can change a lot of things. So what we're going to be looking at, I invite you to turn back to page 1003 if you have a, a Bible in the, in the pews. And uh, otherwise, it's uh, Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to be reading verse 14. Kind of as we read this passage, I'd like to point out three aspects of Jesus' high priesthood. That if we understand that he lives for us now and we get that, uh, we don't have to shrink back in fear from him, but we can go to him in confidence. So this is uh, Hebrews chapter 4. Verses 14 through 16. We're going to start there. So since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then draw, or with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. First picture we get of Jesus as our high priest here is that he understands our weaknesses. He understands your weaknesses. Now, that might not sound like good news for most of us, right? I mean, we live in America. You try to hide your weaknesses. You try to minimize your weaknesses. You try to compensate for your weaknesses. You hope your weaknesses don't, uh, aren't known by other people. I mean, if you're a student in high school, do we have any students, by the way, in high school? No? Well, if you did, uh, students in high school are filling out job or applications to go to college, and you have to tell all about yourself. Do you go on and on about all your flaws and weaknesses through the college admissions? Of course not, right? Or if you're filling out a job, descri- uh, job application, you know, there's always that pesky question that comes somewhere in the application. Tell us about your strengths and your weaknesses, Right? Now, come on, you guys. How many of us are given that a fair shot? Are any of us listing our true weaknesses on that job application? No, of course not. You write like, you, 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 can you imagine if we, we set our actual weaknesses on that job? Like, um, you know, I tend to be pretty lazy. Uh, I don't work very hard. I get distracted. And uh, I would say in terms of work ethic, probably bottom 25 percentile, <laughs> if I'm honest, you know. Or like, you know, I, I have anger issues and when I get really under stress, I totally blow up and it's hurt me in jobs past. It'll probably, happen, it'll probably happen soon if you hire me. No, of course not. We list weaknesses that are like closet strengths on that thing. You know, it's like, well, I tend to be so driven and have high, such high standards that I bring people along and, you know, they just get crushed by these high standards and I try to, you know, we go on and on. Or, or we try to uh, say that we have compensating for our weaknesses. We say things like, you know, I have real issues when it comes to organization, but I've been uh, watching Inbox Zero and uh, reading Getting Things Done, and I have to say, I've been really improving my organi- organizational skills. You know, we put all these things because uh, we don't want our weaknesses to come out, right? But that's the problem with God, you know? He knows all our weaknesses, the ones that you never put on a job application. The flaws and the fatal flaws that you hope your closest friends either don't recognize or maybe don't hold against you. The ones that you've tried to put to the side. He knows it all. He sees it all. And yet this text says he understands, he sympathizes with your weaknesses. Because he himself has been tempted just like you. Jesus was tempted, really? Come on, Jesus? 
We're told of an account in uh, the scriptures specifically where Jesus was led out in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights to be tempted by Satan. And there in the desert, uh, he got the full onslaught of all like Satan's best tricks, his best deception, all his best tools, mano y mano, Jesus and Satan, day after day. In other words, Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted when you're all alone. When no one would have to see, no one would be affected by this, he knows what that feels like because he was alone in the desert. He knows what it's like to be tempted when you're so beaten down and weary. He hadn't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. When you're so weak that you can barely stand, let alone uh, resist an impulse. He knows what it feels like. Still though, I mean, come on, Jesus was the son of God. Didn't he have kind of a leg up on most of us? You know, what, what was he really experiencing? Uh, Bill mentioned that I liked C.S. Lewis, and I was uh, actually helped years ago by a metaphor that C.S. Lewis gives of what Jesus went through. He said, imagine two army battalions, and both are going to be attacked by an oncoming army that's invading. And this oncoming army that's invading goes and attacks his first battalion. And they send off missiles, and they send off bullets, and they send off artillery. And after that first wave, after about five or ten minutes, this first battalion throws up the white flag. And they say, we give up, we surrender, and they come out. And then this same oncoming army that's invading comes now to the second battalion. And they send, again, this barrage of, of bullets and, and warfare and all these things. But this time, that battalion stands. So they come in now with tanks and they begin to fire artillery and shells to try to dislodge this battalion, but the battalion continues to stand. So they bring in airplanes and they drop bombs and, you know, barrage after barrage of missiles, but still this battalion continues to stand and to stand and to stand. And then Lewis says this. He says, which of those two battalions knows more about the strength of the oncoming army? The second battalion, right? The first one, by waving the white flag after five minutes, really knows little about the strength of the army. But the second one, because they've experienced the full force of their might, they know all about the strength. In other words, when we give into temptation after five minutes or ten minutes or five days, we show that we know very little about the true strength of temptation and the enemy. But Jesus Christ, because he kept standing and he kept standing and he kept standing and never gave in. He knows the full force of what temptation looks like in a life because he kept standing. In other words, when you come to the moment of your greatest vulnerability to sin or to fall or to do what you know shouldn't be done, to say what shouldn't be said, to think what shouldn't be thought, Jesus is not standing in heaven with his arms crossed saying, I can't believe it, Rustin. Instead, he stands and he watches and he nods his head and he says, yeah, I get it. I've been there. I know exactly what he's going through. See, because because we have a high priest that didn't just die on a cross. He lives for us now and he understands us. We don't have to shrink back in fear. He invites us to come to him. He invites us to come because he understands our weakness. It's like the hymn writer said many years ago, come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded by the fall. If you tarry until you're better, you will never come at all. So I will arise and go to Jesus. That's his invitation to us. 
But there's a second aspect of Jesus' uh, high priest ministry that comes in uh, verse 1 of chapter 5. Look there. Chapter 5, verse 1. It says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. Now, the Bible was not written to us. It was written for us. This was not written to people in Kansas City in the year 2013. Who is this written to? Answer? The Hebrews. It was written to the Hebrews. Uh, I probably, you probably thought that was a trick question. It wasn't a trick question. It was written to the Hebrews, the Hebrew people. Do you think when he starts talking about the high priesthood and sacrifices, do you think the, the Hebrews know something about that system? Absolutely. They're tracking. This is the air they breathe. This would be like if I started talking about the Super Bowl or some thing in some big event in Kansas City. You'd immediately be tracking along. But we live in Kansas City in 2013, so, uh, you know, for me, a lot of times, the details of the high priesthood of Judaism is a little bit foggy. So why don't we do just a little reminder here. Check, take a look at the screens. Uh, this is a picture of the tabernacle that was used in worship for the Israelites. They used this tent, this tabernacle, uh, from the days of Moses all the way up until David, actually David's son Solomon, and they built the temple. But the temple had the exact same structure as uh, this tabernacle. Uh, you can see the outer courts, and uh, priests would go there day after day, Levites to do ceremonial washings and things like that. And on any given day during the year, today for example, you know, thousands of years ago, they would go into, the, go into that first tent, into that first two-thirds on the right side of that tent. That, that place in the tabernacle was called the holy place. And day after day, uh, Levites would be offering uh, grain offerings, guilt offerings, sin offerings, all these things day after day. But then you can see, do you see when you go two-thirds of the way, there's another, there's another curtain there. And behind that, there's a kind of a bench. That's the Ark of the Covenant. And there was only one person that could go in that place. And he only did that one day a year. And that was the high priest. The high priest would go in that room on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And on that one day, he would offer a sacrifice for all the sins of all the people of Israel. But the interesting thing about uh, this text, and, and God had said in, in the Hebrew scriptures that God would forgive, he would uh, forgive, show mercy to his people because the high priest did this, brought this sacrifice once a year. The interesting thing, though, that we read in Hebrews is that before the high priest ever went into the most holy place, he had to offer a sacrifice for himself, for his own sin. This means that the most holy, the most righteous, the most set-apart man in all Israel, you know, the high priest himself was a broken, wounded, rebellious, sinful man. He's in the same mess that everyone else is in. So he's able to be very compassionate and very merciful, but he's not actually able to help them very much. It'd be like if, if you went down to the local pool with your family. And you get down there, and you know, it's a hot summer day. Everyone's playing in the pool, and there's dozens of other families there. But as you're in the pool, someone, the word gets out that the guy, the lifeguard who's on his big perch, the lifeguard doesn't know how to swim. 
And it's like, okay, that's great. You know, if someone gets in trouble here in the pool, I'm sure on his high and lofty place, he's going to be able to be like compassionate and merciful. But if he jumps in the water, he's not going to be able to help. That's for sure. See, the people of Israel were drowning in the water of their own brokenness and sin. And the priest jumped in to get him, but he couldn't swim either. He was subject to the same weakness that they were. He was able to be compassionate, but he wasn't actually able to save them. Now, Jesus isn't mentioned in this paragraph, but I think he's being implicitly contrasted with that old system of priests. Because the reality is that Jesus didn't just die for you. He lives for you now, and he's before the face of God, not once a year, the day of atonement, but every single day as your high priest. He's able to help you. He's powerful. But what is he doing uh, before the throne of God? Actually, it tells us a little bit later in chapter 7, verse 25. It says, Consequently, Jesus, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus, as your high priest, day in and day out, is praying for you. Have you ever gone through a season of life that's incredibly difficult? You just... You're just put, being put through the ringer. Your work isn't going right. Family isn't going right. Personal life isn't going right. And there's just a weight of heaviness. Maybe you have a friend or a relative or a sibling that is going through a really hard time and you are just beaten down with life. In that moment, if you've ever had someone come up to you and say, hey, I want you to know, I want you to know I've been praying for you. I've been thinking about you. If you hear that in that moment, that is an incredible encouragement to know that someone's praying for you and thinking about you. But do you know what this text means if this is true? This means that there has never been a day in your life in the past and there will never be a day in your life in the future where at least one person isn't praying for you before the Father. Jesus Christ is your high priest. He intercedes on your behalf. He's before the Father. He didn't just die for you. He lives for you now, and he's powerful to help. And if that's the kind of high priest that we have, we don't have to shrink back in fear. He longs for us to come to him with our weakness so he can help and come before the Father. That's the second aspect of Jesus' high priesthood. I want to look at just one more in chapter 5. Look at chapter 5, verses 7 through 10. It says, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God, a high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. Now, there's a lot I could say about this paragraph. I'm not going to address much of it. Each line, you know, probably do a whole sermon on each line. I just want to look at verse 7, though, where it talks about, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Certainly that could have been at any moment of Jesus' life, But most biblical scholars believe that this is a very specific moment in Jesus' life that they're addressing, that they're talking about here. It's a very specific moment. It's the moment when before he went to the cross and before he went on trial, before Pilate, 
he was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying to his father. Here's why uh, many scholars believe that. Here's the text from uh, Luke. If we could have the Luke text up here. This is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them and he knelt down and he prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Do you see why scholars believe when you look at this text in Hebrews, when he talks about earnest cries to the one that could save him from death, they're talking about this moment in Jesus' life that they're probably referring to. Why was Jesus crying out with such anguish? Well, certainly what was coming, but why was he crying out like that? Jesus was about to undergo one of his final high priestly duties in his days on earth. Now, in the Hebrew scriptures, stay with me for just a moment. I know this is, uh, I know this is heavy, but in the Hebrew scriptures, there were two things that were true of a high priest. First of all, he was a representative of all the people and all their sin. So that one day a year, it's as if all of our wrongdoings, all the wrongdoing of the people of Israel were placed on his shoulders as a representative before God. He's a representative. But there's a second thing that was true of the high priest. He wasn't only a representative, he also had a substitute. Those two things always went together. Before he went into that curtain, he would lay his hand on a goat And symbolically, all the sin that was placed on his shoulders would be transferred uh, to this animal. And then the animal would be sacrificed, and it's as if uh, judgment had come to the animal instead of on the priest or the people. And this ritual, year after year, was a picture that Yahweh, creator God, was forgiving them. Representative and a substitute. The high priest would never step in as a representative before God if he didn't have a substitute. Because if he didn't have a substitute, it was his neck instead of the goat. That's clearly uh, outlined in the book of Leviticus. Now Jesus is coming to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says, Father, take, take this cup away from me. The cup, the cup of wrath that I'm about to endure, take it away. Why does he pray, take away that cup of God's wrath? Was it because that Jesus had lived a sinful life and he was deserving of punishment? Absolutely not. He had lived the perfect life, but you see, he was stepping in as the representative of his people, not just of Israel, but of the entire world. The sin of the entire world was being placed on him as our representative. But here's the catch. There was no substitute. There was no goat that he would lay his hand on. Because when Jesus is arrested and he goes to the cross, he himself was not only our representative, but our substitute who dies in our place. In other words, in Jesus, you have a high priest that is willing to go to infinite cost in love so you can be brought to the Father. He loves you so much that he is willing to to pay an infinite cost so you can be brought to the Father, and if he loves you that much as your high priest, you don't have to shrink back in fear. <laughs> he invites you to come. You know, uh, back, back in Madison at the house, uh, when Winnie was at the bottom of the stairs, walking away, drifting away, 
Todd, my brother-in-law, would go down the stairs, and he's this big, you know, big guy, 6'6". Six, six. And he would go and find Winnie, and he would put Winnie in his arms. And he'd just walk back up the steps with Winnie. And, uh, you know, drop her off at the top, and Winnie would be so happy. She'd be wagging her tail, and she'd be snorting. And I, I think she was kind of embarrassed, actually. But she was so happy. But it pretty much cost nothing for Todd to descend and come back up. But Jesus Christ didn't just descend a few stairs to wrap us in his arms. But he descended the glory of heaven to come and live and walk among our sod to live among us. He descends further to go to the cross to die for us. He descends further into the ground, all for the purpose so that we could be brought in his arms and brought to the Father. Because the text says that on the third day, he rises from the dead, that God saw his son, perfect life, perfect vindication, and he rose him from the dead so that we could be brought to the Father. To shrink back in fear, it's like a slap in his face, right? It's like to say, that doesn't mean much, but he loved us so much at infinite cost, he gave himself to bring us to the Father. So I don't, I don't know your life. I don't know, you know, what you came here with today, um, I don't know if it's been a while, maybe there were years ago or months ago when you were drawing near the Father and you felt like you were tracking with Him, but these last few months, life has happened, and so when you go to Him in prayer, it feels almost kind of awkward, like, is He even listening to me? Or maybe you've come here today and you've been dealing with secret sin of some sort, secret anger or secret bitterness, secret lust, secret jealousy. So when you're singing these songs and praying these prayers, it's like, oh man, there's no way that God, there's no way that he's going to hear me. I'm guilty. Or maybe you've never come to the Father because you just think he's unknowable, he's unsearchable. I don't even, I mean, I don't, I don't even know. This message <laughs> that we see in Hebrews today is the fact that Jesus didn't just die for you. He lives right now as your high priest and he invites you to come to him. Since then, we have a great high priest over the house of God, Jesus Christ, our high priest. Let's approach his throne of grace with grace and with with confidence so that we may receive grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. So I don't know how this uh, is a word from God for you today, but I know that God is speaking to each of us and he invites us to come to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, you are not a God who's far off and just has a bunch of rules and gets angry at us, but in Jesus, you've given us a high priest who you know, understands our weakness, has power to help, he loves us at infinite cost to himself. I pray that wherever we're at today, that uh, today we would sense your invitation uh, to come to you and to draw near to receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. So we give our lives and we put our hope in you. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said.